This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, listeners, and welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Emily Allen, and I'm your host for this episode. For our conversation today, I am talking with Dr. Timothy Storhoff about his book, Harmony and Normalization, U.S.-Cuban Musical Diplomacy, published by the University Press of Mississippi in 2020. Harmony and Normalization, U.S.-Cuban Musical Diplomacy, explores the channels of musical exchange between Cuba and the United States during the eight-year presidency of Barack Obama, who eased the musical embargo of the island and restored relations with Cuba. Musical exchanges during this period act as a lens through which to view not only U.S.-Cuban musical relations, but also the larger political, economic, and cultural implications of musical dialogue between these two nations. In this first book on the subject since Obama's presidency, musicologist Timothy Storhoff describes how, after specific policy changes, musicians were some of the first to take advantage of new opportunities for travel, push the boundaries of new regulations, and expose the possibilities and limitations of licensing musical exchange. This ethnography demonstrates how performances reflect aspirations for stronger transnational ties and a common desire to restore the once thriving U.S.-Cuban musical relationship. Dr. Timothy Storhoff is an orchestra administrator, fundraiser, and ethnomusicologist in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. He received his PhD in musicology at Florida State University in 2014. In addition to his, his book, Harmony and Normalization, Dr. Storhoff has also recently published an article in the Journal of the Society for American Music, entitled Music, Politics, and the Liminality of the Havana Jazz Plaza Festival in the Obama Era. So, Dr. Storhoff, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of New Books and Music. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to to chat with you. Yeah, and I think it'll be great for our listeners to hear about your book. Um, so before we, speaking of which, get into the talk about the book, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself? Sure. So um, I studied bassoon at the University of Iowa, where I also started performing in an Afro-Cuban drum and dance ensemble, which is where the seeds for this project were originally first planted. Uh, then I went to graduate school for musicology at Florida State, where I received uh, my PhD. Uh, I don't know if we should tell them that we knew each other there. Um, yes, yes, we did. <laughs> didn't have any classes together, but 
crossed paths in Tallahassee a number of times. Uh, and while I was in Tallahassee, I started working for Florida's state arts agency. Uh, so I've been straddling the academic and arts management world for the last eight years now. I administered a number of grant programs for the Florida Department of State. And now I work in orchestra fundraising, and I'm really proud to be on staff here at the Winston-Salem Symphony while we're trying to bring music to the community during this pandemic. Yeah, and that made me think about knowing your background. How do you think that your experience in academia and the arts admin world at this point maybe informed this project? I I think it did quite a bit, just in terms of even knowing really easily how to go in and look up a state's laws and the bills and things like that. And you know, that was something that I would have to do while I was working at the Department of State for. Florida and being able to kind of track some of those things down and the changes, whether it's you know federal bureaucracy or state bureaucracy, as was really helpful for this project. And it just kind of shaped how I think about a lot of this stuff, I believe. And you know, it, it's planted lots of seeds. I'm interested in you know in the future digging into you know, origins of the National Endowment for the Arts and some of those other big federal things and how those have impacted. Uh, music making in our country. Yeah, that's really interesting. I always think it's important uh, with a scholar's relation to project, what draws them to that work? You know, I think there's always kind of a personal touch to that, especially in ethnography. Um, Yeah. And with this, one of those most personal early things was when I was playing in that Afro-Cuban drum and dance ensemble and the directors were able to tell me about how they used to bring the group to Cuba every four years. I think they were maybe able to do it twice. And then when I was in it, they couldn't go anymore. And I was like, what do you mean? And then started looking into it. And you know, There's this one country in the whole world that my government was saying, you're not allowed to travel to. And you know, that just kind of was a something that I had to scratch because there's such a thriving musical relationship and you know, just had to, had to look into that some more. And that's, what turned into this book. Yeah. And I guess across talking about that journey, um, what was the research process like that led to this book? It was, it was challenging. Um, so this started out as a dissertation project. This grew out of my dissertation. And back when I was working on that, I was having to navigate both government and university bureaucracies, which both can be extremely challenging and convoluted. Um, And year after year under the Obama administration, the Department of Treasury's sort of rules and restrictions on who could go to Cuba or how you could do it were changing. So I first went to Havana in 2011. I participated in the Folk Cuba Afro-Cuban drumming workshop, just kind of a trip to get my feet on the ground, familiarize myself with the city and everything. Then when I went for more of a formal research purpose for the Havana Jazz Festival. A year later, the university stepped in and I had to meet with a a lawyer and I ended up explaining to her how all the laws and regulations had changed over the last couple of years, which I don't think is normally how it goes, but it all worked out. (laughs) And uh, I was able to go to the Havana Jazz Festival. Uh, I attended a number of performances of Cuban musicians coming to the U.S., so I was kind of looking at both sides of that. Uh, the most significant of those sort of following the National Symphony Orchestra of Cuba around as they were on their first U.S. tour in 2012. 
and uh, went to a number of different festivals and things. And then in 2016, I joined a group from St. Augustine. I was kind of celebrating the um, reestablishment of diplomatic relations and I started this initiative called Across the Straits. And I joined them and some of their musicians and went down at that point, which at that point it was super easy, but it was interesting to see how much it changed from year to year each time I went or when I talked to musicians coming here, how that was sort of transforming in real time. Yeah, I was thinking too, um, have you talked to some of these folks about how they're doing this year with everything? I mean, just thinking about the craziness that is 2020, I guess. (laughs) No, I haven't. It's kind of the challenges of communications. Uh, One of my, um, one of the informants that I talked to and who's actually based up in Minnesota, um, recently recovered from a, a bout with the coronavirus and it was pretty well covered in some of the Twin Cities newspapers and everything. He's a jazz pianist up there, Nichito Herrera. So I just reached out to him recently and sent him a copy of the book once it was finally out. But thankfully he's back performing again and doing well. But most of the people I talk to are just kind of now waiting and hoping that some of these cultural exchanges and things can continue again in the future. Yeah. I've been wondering um, in general, you know, with this year, how much that's affected various aspects of the arts and you seem to have like a bird's eye view of some of that, at least with this project. So it's interesting here. I'm glad that your uh, colleague recovered though. That's good to hear. Um. And then we'll come back to other more contemporary, you know, connections to this work later, but kind of backtracking a bit um, to the scope of the book itself here. Let me ask you about a couple of terms. So you have in your book's title, what seem to be two key terms, harmony and normalization. So what are the two, what is the significance of those words um, in the context of your book? Uh, So harmony, of course, is a musical term. And this isn't a music theory text by any means, so I don't really get into analysis of harmonies or things like that at all. But uh, it's extra musical terms are almost as widely known as, you know, implying different parts working together in agreement, um, going in the same direction. And then normalization is a term that comes up a lot when looking at U.S.-Cuban relations uh, following some sort of a severing of diplomatic ties often happens with a war or something else, normalizing of relations is when countries reestablish those dip- diplomacy and embassies and things like that. So you know, the U.S. normalized relations with Vietnam in 95 and with China in the 1970s. And it was always a question of when are we going to normalize relations with Cuba? And it's still kind of an ongoing question. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Um, I feel like you could add, you could keep writing this book. <laughs> Yeah. And never stop. <laughs> um, so it's definitely relevant, I think, um, to the current moment and ongoing. So um, nice addition to the current literature for sure. Um, so going to uh, the introduction here, you kind of you know set the stage for the rest of the book with kind of like the general 
kind of what you were just talking about, kind of a bird's eye view of that diplomacy. Um, you say, quote, the performances themselves have reflected the promise and tensions of U.S.-Cuban relations. These dynamics manifest themselves in music through the styles and genres musicians choose to present while abroad in selecting music that represents a more harmonious international relationship, going back to that word, or subverts listeners' musical expectations. Performers can be critical of the status quo without making overt political statements and can teach and can reach new audiences and individuals by avoiding simple political classifications, end quote. So I thought that was interesting um, in that, you know, let me ask you this. How do you see these performances complicating that idea of something being political? I'm thinking about, for instance, chapter three, about how you talk about the Cuban musicians' performances in the U.S. that were kind of pegged as political, despite the musicians claiming them as apolitical and more for personal reasons. Yeah, um, and that's something that happens over and over and over. It seemed to happen more to Cuban musicians coming to the U.S. than um, vice versa, when it would be uh, musicians from based in the U.S. going to Cuba, it would almost be sometimes more when they would come back when that those political, uh, almost call accusations, would come up or you know, be pushed on them, even if that's what they claim to not be intending. So whether it's U.S. musicians visiting Cuba or Cuban musicians visiting the U.S., they are all really careful to avoid being overtly political because it could put the potential to travel in the future at risk. Um, as academics, we're sort of trained to understand all music making as political, but yes, <laughs> I um, which is totally valid. But I also wanted to take the musicians' perspectives as valid. Also, if they say something is not political, you know, why not believe them and interpret it in that way? Also, and I think for a lot of people, you know, being political or not political is endorsing a candidate or a policy of some sort. And they would kind of try to not do that, even though some of the things they would call for would directly connect to some of that. Um, an example is uh, after one of the performances by the National Symphony Orchestra of Cuba on that first tour of the U.S., there was a Q&A after one of the concerts and someone asked whether the tour was intentionally timed for the 50th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And the guest artist, who was also serving as a translator kind of said, I wasn't even born then. No, there's nothing political. We didn't come here for politics. My doctorate is in music, not political science or anything like that. So this is not about politics at all. We just want the people from our two countries to come together and create music together and to be able to keep interacting. And then you know, everyone in the audience applauded that. But you, know, you step back from that and you're like, calling on those things is political because it requires political action or change to make the continued interaction possible. So it's sort of my job through a lot of this was balancing that of what people say is not political, but also the political implications of, of those statements and politics made any of these interactions possible. Right. And is there an example you have, you can think of where, I mean, the whole situation itself is obviously has historically been very challenging, but is there like in your research, a specific example of where 
you saw something that was intentionally political, you know, like an example here that might have backfired for these musicians? Um, let me think of, there's one that comes to mind, but it wasn't, isn't exactly a, uh, us Cuban issue, but it more speaks to, I guess, the dangers of being a Cuban musician and sometimes speaking out on, um, politics. Right. Um, there's a, a musician during a, a televised festival, um, and it's, um, Bobby Carcass is his son, and I'm blanking on his son's name right now, but uh, plays in a rock band and at some point said, end the information embargo, legalize marijuana, a few things like that. And then uh, a few days later, suddenly all their gigs were canceled and you know, weren't able to play. A bunch of other musicians kind of stepped up and said, no, this isn't right. You can't do that. So they were kind of able to get their official status restored, but uh, it was kind of questionable for a while if they were going to be able to keep performing as professional musicians in Cuba because of that. Uh, for them, musicians coming to the U.S., um, you'd have things like the National Symphony Orchestra of Cuba. When they came down, they didn't perform in Miami because of concerns about protests and things like that but at their performance in palm beach there were some protesters who came out at that point they were specifically calling for the uh, release of alan gross who was a contractor from the u.s who was imprisoned in cuba at the time and were sort of using the opportunity of the cuban orchestra being in the country to raise awareness of that issue and um, really drag them into politics even though the orchestra was trying to avoid that as much as they could. Yeah. It seems like from what you're saying and from what I read in the book too, that the, it was just very easily, I don't know, easy to fall down that slippery slope, I guess, of like you mentioned in that chapter three, like something being painted um, as political or even over intentionally doing so. And I was going to say too, um, and all that, maybe thinking about the audience to, do you think that that risk came the most from, or I guess what was the audience's role at these different performances in, you know, being a threat or not um, in terms of something being politicized, I guess. Um, in the U S performances, I think a yeah. lot of audiences were really reading into that, looking for that type of thing, just because, Cuban music still has, and Cuban musicians still have this you know, forbidden sort of exoticization around them because it's been cut off for so long. You know, the rest of the world hasn't been cut off from Cuba the way the United States has. And so when those musicians do come over, people are kind of looking for that type of thing. So you know, I'd be sitting in these orchestra concerts and people would be saying, yeah, isn't it crazy that I can't go to Havana or that this hasn't happened? And it's, 2012 and this orchestra has never been to our country before and those type of things. Um, people were really kind of actively looking for that and trying to read into it. And that, they were even surprised that they weren't playing all Cuban music or all music that tied into that. You know, they played some Mendelssohn and Beethoven and someone even asked that at one of the Q and A's like, why did you play this 19th century European music? And their answer was like, well, 
we are a symphony orchestra. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's really like, that's not surprising. Like it's come on y'all. Right. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so kind of going back in time a bit here, leading up to some of those things, um, you know, we've mostly been talking about the 2010s, I think so far, but let's maybe go back to chapter one here and um, look at kind of what you've outlined from around 1960 to 2008, you kind of trace the different uh, shifts in this musical relationship between the U.S. and Cuba, um, changing pretty much quite a bit from president to president, you know, of the United States. So can you talk about some of those shifts that happened, you know, in the late 20th century to early 21st? Yeah. And it's, yeah, that, that section's really structured you know, presidential administration to presidential administration, because that is where those changes are happening. And it's very U.S. centric because you go through all these different presidential administrations. And on the other side of it, it was Fidel Castro the whole time. Right. Almost all these, so many of them thought that they were going to be the one to, whether it's topple Castro or you know, out, outlast him, but he was there until, until after I finished the dissertation version of this and, you know, during the Obama administration. But uh, so 1960, you know, or the Cuban revolution happens in, you know, really comes in to control in 59. 1960 under Eisenhower is when the, that initial embargo happens. And Kennedy strengthens it and puts in the uh, travel ban for U.S. citizens, preventing them from going to Cuba. And I want to clarify that it's not really a, a law, the way we think about them, that is keeps people from traveling there. It's in these Department of Treasury regulations. So it's not illegal to step foot in Cuba, but it's illegal to spend money in the act of going to Cuba, which you know, effectively makes it illegal to be there. Interesting. Yeah. So, and that's, I had to spend a lot of time really digging into those, the changes in the nuances of the Department of Treasury and the, it's actually the Office of Foreign Assets Control. So I talk about the OFAC a lot in the book. But after you know, Kennedy puts that in, it doesn't change much throughout the 60s and 70s. Uh, and then the Carter administration really opens things up in lieu of embassies. The U.S. and Cuba establish interest sections to have some limited diplomatic engagement. And Carter also lifts the rules limiting travel. And that made a number of significant musical events possible. One of the really interesting ones was uh, in 1977, there was a jazz cruise of the Caribbean scheduled to leave New Orleans. Cuba was not part of the itinerary originally, but then it was added as soon as it became legal. So you had some protesters there protesting while it was leaving this ship called the, the Daphne. And it had musicians like uh, Dizzy Gillespie, Stan Getz, Ry Cooter, all sorts of jazz fans on there. And it stops in Havana. And it was one of the first times that these musicians are playing together. It's when Arturo Sandoval, Paquito de Rivera are able to perform with Dizzy Gillespie and some of these really important relationships are formed. Then in 1979, Columbia Records organizes this event. They called the Havana Jam Festival. They sent down Billy Joel, Weather Report, 
the Finding All Stars, Chris Christopherson, Stephen Stills, all these musicians from all sorts of different genres performed a few nights uh, alongside um, Cuban musicians like Orquesta Aragon, Irakire. And then because of this, Irakire goes on tour with Stephen Stills in the US and starts to build a following and you know, performs all these festivals around the world. Uh, I could almost, you could do a whole book just on sort of the significance of the Carter administration and some of these uh, musical interactions. But I think partly because of what Carter did, uh, the Cuban exile community coalesces around the Republican Party by 1980, and then Reagan wins. By 82, the travel ban is reinstated. And one other significant thing that Reagan does is he signs this presidential proclamation 5377 that bans all employees of the Cuban government from traveling to the U.S., which in effect stops professional Cuban musicians from coming to the U.S. because they're all almost all connected to the Cuban Ministry of Culture in some shape or form because of Cuba's socialist system. And that largely says there's some interactions. Dizzy Gillespie is still able to go down to the Havana Jazz Festival a couple times during that time because he's Dizzy Gillespie, he's able to get the um, permission from the State Department and all that. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> and he actually helps um, Arturo Sandoval uh, get to the U.S. at one of those. I think they go on a Euro- European tour together and helps him then get over to the U.S. and Paquito de Rivera during that era also. Uh, but then we get to the 1990s, uh, Soviet Union collapse collapses, and without the, that support, the Cuban government goes into what's been called the special period. The economy really retracts tons of difficulties there because they had depended on the support from the Soviet Union. And they start trying to bring in tourists and bring foreign currency in because they need hard currency just to buy food and keep the lights on and everything. Uh, so the U.S. government during this time, instead of reaching out to Cuba at the end of the Cold War, tightens the embargo. They're confident that this will then topple the Castro regime, but it kind of just hardens them. They can blame the U.S. government for all the problems. Uh, Congress passes, it's called the Cuban Democracy Act, and then later the Helms-Burton Act, which actually takes control of the embargo away from the president and sort of solidifies it in law at this point. So no single president can just come in and decide on their own that now the embargo is over. So on one hand, Clinton kind of has to take this hard line on Cuba in terms of economics, but in his second term, he also facilitates these cultural exchanges and opens up opportunities for Cuban musicians to come to the U.S., uh, puts out a new category of travel called people-to-people travel, where groups from the U.S. can go for cultural purposes to Cuba to learn about things, uh, just to engage Cubans. And um, Cuban music becomes really huge in the U.S. during this time, partly because of the Buena Vista Social Club album and the subsequent film, documentary film. And Ry Cooter, who's the American guitarist who recorded and produced that, he was on that jazz cruise in 77. But when he went to Cuba in the 90s to record Buena Vista Social Club, he did not get any of the legal permissions to do so. So he was breaking the law to do it. And then the Clinton administration starts getting all these inquiries from 
record companies and things like that saying, hey, how, how can we get the same permission that Ry Cooter had to go to Cuba and do something like that? So they have to they slap a fine on him. But I think the money he made from the album more than paid for that. I'm sure. <laughs> um, and that kind of continues. And then we hit the post-September 11th world under George W. Bush. Travel restrictions come back in a big way. By 2004 is really when all the new rules are in on Cuba travel specifically, and really all interaction comes to a halt. That presidential proclamation that Reagan put in comes back, and they actually crack down on people breaking the embargo. Uh, There was a bit of a controversy where some of the Department of Treasury investigators that were supposed to be tracking down Osama bin Laden's finances and things like that were actually going after people for going to Cuba instead of doing the terrorism-related tasks they were supposed to do. And then, you know, that sort of takes us to President Obama's term, first term, where he called for a new beginning with U.S.-Cuban relations uh, very early on in his administration. And he starts putting in changes first for Cubans, Cuban-Americans who have family members there so they can go back and visit their family, and then just starts rolling out year after year just some other opportunities for educational travel, for artists, for different things to um, be able to go back and forth. And actually, by, by the end of 2009, that first year of Obama's administration, the State Department had issued 5,500 more visas for Cubans to visit the U.S. than had been issued the previous year. So it started happening pretty quickly. And musicians were really the first, some of the first people to want to jump on that and were applying for licenses right away. Yeah. And that actually leads really well to my um, next question, which was sort of in that turning point during um, Obama's for sure. And, you know, throughout his administration, what were some of the, you know, notable performances that were part of that musical diplomacy that we were seeing during that time? One of the, Big early ones is uh, Juan Ace, a Colombian rock star now based in Miami. He'd done these um, Paz Sin Fronteras concerts, Peace Without Borders concerts before, and then he wanted to do one in Havana to try to kind of bring together the divided Cuban family between you know, Miami and elsewhere and those still on the island. And he got permission from the Department of State to do it, had a uh, cooperation from the U.S. government. So this was really more of a formal cultural diplomacy effort than a lot of the others that I talk about that are much more informal because he was working with you know, Secretary Clinton and had gotten that those direct permissions. Goes to Havana, puts on this big festival concert with all sorts of artists from the U.S., from Cuba, from throughout Latin America. And it was the first concert to be simultaneously broadcast in Miami and in Cuba at the same time. And before it, there was a lot of pushback for him doing this. You know, there were some of those coordinated burnings of his records and things like that. He received some death threats in Miami. But afterwards, after people saw it, there was more of a positive feeling about it. He made some statements that could be interpreted um, differently from different people, but you know, calling for 
a free Cuba calling for uh, one Cuban family that I think made people feel better about it that previously were concerned about him going to Cuba and doing this concert. Uh, the Jazz at Lincoln Center went to Havana pretty early on in the Obama administration, and they'd been uh, done lots of cultural diplomacy um, work over the last number of decades. So they were kind of used to doing things like that. They recorded an album there. But it was also just so many of these smaller kind of unofficial things of people just wanting to go to Cuba to perform in the many festivals they have there, you know, all the concert producers in the U.S. wanting to bring Cuban musicians here to perform, and you know, just people, this desire to go on their own, and not even necessarily thinking of it as cultural diplomacy in their own right, but needing that permission to do so. Right. I was thinking too, so in this kind of, I guess, increase of, you know, performances back and forth, you know, what kind of genres are we seeing um, in this? Like what kind of musicians are we seeing go back and forth, you know, in this Obama era? It's all over the place. Um, Popular music, a lot of jazz. Uh, In terms of musicians coming from Cuba to the U.S., you know, a lot of those Buena Vista Social Club musicians and performers who have cachet from previously, you know, there was an interest in bringing them over here. So a lot of that traditional Cuban music, you know, rumba musicians, it was kind of really running the gamut. And in terms of U.S. musicians going to Cuba, it was classical musicians from soloists to small ensembles to um, jazz performers and you know, popular, well-known pop stars and things too. Yeah. I think you mentioned Beyonce, right? At one point. Yeah. There was a a lot of controversy when Jay-Z and Beyonce went to Havana in 2013 and they didn't go as performers. They went on one of these people to people trips. So the Obama administration restarted that travel category that originally was created under Clinton and uh, Beyonce and Jay-Z went with this museum out of New York city that had one of these people to people licenses and it created a big stir. They, they visited some schools there and interacted with some musicians while they were there, but they didn't put on concerts while they were there, but it created a lot of media buzz and some legislators that were against this opening up of relationships, you know, demanded, evidence of why they were able to go there. They were accused it of being tourism, which is, you know, not legally allowed, but I kind of go into that in the book too, like how we define tourism is sort of a silly arbitrary thing. Yeah. Actually, I'd love to hear you talk about that more. So I guess what, I guess maybe expound on that. Like, what do you see the challenge of narrowly defining um, tourism to be? So with all these restrictions, they all kind of say that it's supposed to be for a cultural purpose to, you know, you have to fit into one of these categories during this time. Tourism is not one of those. So you can't, you can't say, I want to go to Cuba to just sit on the beach and sip mojitos and enjoy myself. Darn. Yeah. Right. But a lot of people, when they're, our tourists want to go to concerts. They want to 
interact with people. They want to do th- tourism. Isn't just you know that you know strict concept of pure leisure activity. And even while you are doing these leisurely things, there are these really meaningful interactions that happen between people from different cultures. It's this just interesting thing that it's never clearly defined in the law or anything either. What is tourism? So you know, like some people will point out and be like, aha, they were there for tourism. But you know, I love going to museums when I'm visiting somewhere new. A lot of the times while I was there doing research, I was walking around with a camera around my neck. You wouldn't be able to tell the difference between me and someone who is just a tourist from Europe or something like that. So it really is arbitrary. And this idea that tourism is kind of meaningless or purposeless as opposed to quote unquote purposeful travel, which is what you know all Cuba travel is supposed to be, I think is just kind of silly. And I sort of point out throughout the book, some of the examples of that. Yes, that could be one's purpose for traveling <laughs> and still be purposeful. Yeah, exactly. Um, thank you for that. That was interesting um, to hear kind of that breakdown. Um, and then going back to sort of types of performances, this I was thinking about how in Chapter 4, you talk about the Havana Jazz Plaza Festival, but you also mentioned you know, other festivals as well um, throughout the book. And it got me thinking about how festive spaces operate in all this. So how do you see festivals contributing to or resisting these politics? You know, there's kind of an academic circles theories about how festive spaces in general are often opportunities to, you know, subvert, suspend, or reinforce norms, you know, political or otherwise. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, festivals are happening all the time in Havana throughout Cuba, partly because it's something that draws foreign tourists in. It's a way that they're able to bring money to the island. And U.S. musicians are attracted to it because it is an opportunity for them to perform. So it really spanned the gamut of genres, you know, lots of classical music festivals from whether it's focused on classical guitar with uh, like Leo Brower or just piano festivals, things like that, chamber music festivals to the jazz festival, which I spend chapter four talking about. Uh, They are these opportunities for interaction where a lot of the, the stressors or concerns about the laws and the um, restrictions kind of seem to go away. You have people from the U S people from Cuba dancing together, making music together. And those thoughts of tourism versus not tourism versus purposeful travel sort of dissipate. And it, it's an opportunity to interact like it's not a concern, but at the same time, there are concerns when you see so many people coming for a festival, it almost becomes uh, something people want to, attend because it's seen as a way to experience a whole culture in a condensed amount of time. But then you are just sort of seeing this festival atmosphere. You're not seeing the the everyday life as it would normally be, which you know, 
could be concerning if you know that's all you're looking at and you want to then come back and say, oh yeah, you know, Cuba's great. There's no problems. Everyone's happy all the time. Well, it's like, well, yeah, they are happy while you're dancing and having fun and enjoying music. But it really does just create this transnational space and I think people play with genres a lot. I thought it was interesting during the Havana Jazz Festival, the musicians I talked to from the US, some of them were told, you know, they thought they'd you know, work up their rendition of Guantanamera or um, you know, their favorite track from Buena Vista Social Club. And they talked to someone and be like, no, 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 don't do that. People are so tired of hearing those tunes played by foreigners who come visit. We'd rather just hear you know, your music. So you had some jazz bands playing um, their originals, their uh, music from you know the big band era in the U.S. that then was really popular because that is, isn't stuff that the Cuban audience is hearing as much. And it becomes this opportunity to exchange music that is different, but shared. Yeah. I was thinking about that risk that you were talking about there with kind of culture being put on display in that way. Um, problematically. So, but at the same time, like you said, it's opportunities. Um, but I guess that goes back to what you're talking about, like with tourism, it's sort of just part of that aspect of what people typically think about with purposeful travel or tourism, whatever you want to call it, going yeah. over and wanting some kind of convenient way to experience it without, I don't know, it's kind of a interesting problematic. Yeah. Well, and there's, cause there is this ongoing communication divide between the U S and Cuba. You try to go to websites to find out, you know, you get the permission to go or whatever it might be, but it's not easy to find out where to stay, um, when to go, how to get that all set up. So festivals create this opportunity uh, where if you can find the dates and that would be a challenge too, you know, the dates would move sometimes very last minute. Sometimes the uh, lineups for these festivals would change the day of the performance or, you know, be shuffled at the last minute. And it was kind of always up in the air, which was a surprise to some of the U S musicians who would come over, but it is still that opportunity for them to come over and know that there will be something there for them to participate in. Right. I was going to ask too, about, I was thinking about again, the current moment, have you seen any, I mean, I imagine not any in-person festivals, but has there been any kind of like alternative to the in-person festivals that you've seen this year at all? Not that I, not that I've seen, I know the jazz festival had sort of shifted its timeline again, where it moved from sort of the December time period up into kind of February spring. So it looked like it, you know, sort of skipped a year in that process. And I haven't seen what's, so we'd kind of be coming up on the next jazz festival pretty soon here. And I haven't seen much of what to expect there. Um, but again, even if this was a normal year, I'd be scrambling to find the lineups and the exact dates, even if I was thinking it was going to be happening a month from now. So I'm going to kind of keep my eye on that, but I'm going to be interested to see come uh, January, February, if the festival happens and in what capacity. Yeah, that's something I'm definitely 
as a whole kind of thinking about is these large group music events, like what that's going to look like going into next year. So I was just curious. Um, uh, going on to chapter five now, you started talking about this a little bit earlier to an extent, but the idea of you know using social networks as a way to go back and forth between the U.S. and Cuba, I thought that was really interesting. Can you talk about those networks for us? Yeah, it, it ties into what I was kind of just saying about that, the lack of communication or able to find robust, accurate information about going to the island or what's happening there, that people really do depend on someone who is in the know, um, whether that's musicians needing to know someone there to get an invitation for them to come to one of these festivals and perform, or if it's um, you know, a Cuban musician having a connection to someone who, you know, a family member who now lives in the U S who was able to you know, help them get an invitation and the visa to come perform and everything. It really depends on those personal relationships. And it often is, you know, those weak ties, not your best friend, but the friend of a friend who's able to connect to you. Uh, one of the examples I give is during the jazz festival, there's was this um, group, the uh, Wilma Gid Quartet. Uh, he now performs under the name Balkan Bump, a uh, great trumpeter. And he was playing in San Francisco, and his manager was friends with this expat who now lives in Cuba, and she does a lot of writing there. And she happened to be in San Francisco visiting this friend, heard their band play, and that's sort of where this connection happened. And then she said, let me see if I can get you an invitation to come perform at the jazz festival that ended up happening. And it was just kind of through this chance meeting, this you know, loose connection and almost everyone I would talk to if they weren't a Cuban musician who had left the Island and was coming back to perform was depending on some sort of a connection like that to come and play there. Other people have to, pay for that connection. There are companies that you know will set that stuff up for you. Uh, Classical Movements is a nonprofit here in the U.S. that helps uh, classical music organizations with cultural exchanges all the time, and they did some during the Clinton era, and they still had some of those connections um, that they tried to maintain so that when things opened up again and some of these organizations wanted to go down there, they could call them up and they were able to say, yeah, okay, let me reach out, see what we can make happen. So it's really kind of dependent on people in the know that can then provide the connections and just make it all come to fruition. Because if you just decide, hey, I want to go perform in Cuba, good luck. Oh, I'm sure. I can't imagine trying to juggle all of that, especially because you were saying about going back to the festival, how up in the air it was, and then trying to also find someone who knows someone. Gosh. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it works very different from a lot of you know, European jazz festivals and stuff like that, that some of these same musicians are used to participating in because there are these formal networks outside of Cuba with you know, producers and, you know, 
inside the professional music world that because of the embargo and things like that, Cuba has been cut off from in a lot of ways. You can't draw on those same connections, but you have to find these sort of um, Cuba knowledge connections on their own. Yeah, I guess maybe hearing more about your experiences too, what was it like for you, I guess, in a different way, but like kind of tapping into those networks and, you know, trying to juggle the fluctuating dates I'm sure you had to deal with. What was that like for you? Um, It was a little frustrating as it would be for everyone because especially at the time when I was doing, you know, IRB stuff through the university and all that, and you have to provide these dates and then they would change and you you need to go get your paperwork updated last minute and stuff like that. But thankfully it was, you know, people very welcoming and accommodating. I think one of my trips, I thought I had set up a stay at a home where I'd previously stayed. I got there and they were already all booked up and, brought me in. He's like, Oh, Tim, I remember you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please. Sorry about this miscommunication. And he called around to another uh, Casa Particular. That's what these homes are, where they're licensed to rent out rooms to travelers. And he just called around the neighborhood and found me another room, walked me down there and got me all set up. So it's improvisation is required musical and otherwise, if you want to do any of this. And that was something I saw with you know, the Cubans having to depend on also just keeping those cars running and things like that. You just have to be able to kind of go with the flow and make it work because the best laid plans off to go awry. Oh, I'm sure. I can't imagine trying to do a dissertation. <laughs> Gosh, but you made it work. Yep. <laughs> um. Yeah, I thought that was, it was in your introduction, right, where you kind of made a play on that word improvisation in a lot of ways. I thought that was a really effective way to capture that experience um, and just kind of that overall, you know, nature of going to Cuba, you know, to perform and whatnot. So um, kind of another key term, I guess, of the book, I know we talked about harmony and normalization as key terms, but improvisation seems to be another yeah. I think in, in multiple ways, just sort of what I said in terms of making things work and adapting in the moment, but just so much of the music uses improvisation you know, outside of jazz as well, whether it's um, you know, Afro-Cuban drumming and um, dance and the playfulness of a Roomba performance. You know, it's all about improvisation while also knowing those standard rhythms and things that you can sort of turn back to and depend on. And that interplay is really, I think where the, the beauty and the fun comes out of. Yeah. And then as we kind of start wrapping up, I wanted to ask you as well about, you know, obviously your book is very much structured around, you know, the way these, policies or these relationships rather have shifted from U.S. president to U.S. president. And obviously, we're very much in a turning point with the recent election of Joe Biden as the next U.S. president. So based on kind of your 
knowledge of those shifts, what do you think might possibly happen over the next four years? I know that's a big question, yeah. but what are you starting to see hints of, I guess? I have no idea. You know, a lot of what Biden ran on or sort of called for is a continuation of things that started under Obama. So I could see a desire to sort of reestablish what was started there. And I guess I should clarify, it's not that we we haven't severed the diplomatic relations that started, that were you know officially resumed in you know, December 2014 and throughout 2015. But right now our embassy in Havana is basically empty. We've just kind of pulled most of our people out of it. And you know, the work that was being done just kind of stopped. And I could see a desire to renew that, to kind of re-engage. But you know, um, Biden lost Florida, and I could also see him being cautious about doing that and being worried about being dubbed a socialist and you know all those things. That so so much of this depends on Florida politics and its role as sort of an electoral college swing state, and you know, really drove so much of those changes from presidential administration to presidential administration. So I have no idea, but it'll be, it'll be interesting to watch and I'm anxious to see what happens. Yes. And then you can write another book. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. And speaking of books, uh, what other projects are you working on? Right now it's really kind of stepping away from this and just working on lots of grant applications, you know, and when you're a performing arts organization in the middle of a pandemic, when, you know, what you do, you can't do, we're having to get creative and fundraising is really important right now because we can't sell tickets the way we used to. So a lot of my, my creative thinking is going towards that, but I am, I am hoping to jump into another project before too long looking at, um, I mentioned either the National Endowment for the Arts or looking at the many different state arts agencies and the programs that they have and how those have influenced um, music making through the programs that they have that can either um, support composers and stuff like that. I'm also interested in the President's uh, Council on Arts and Humanities, which I mentioned some in the book. They went along on one of the, the first official cultural diplomacy efforts under Obama in 2016, and the group actually disbanded under Trump um, following the whole Charlottesville debacle. And I'm curious if that comes back. And I'm just interested in looking at the the history of that organization that existed from the Reagan administration. It was formed to kind of do research about whether there should still be a National Endowment for the Arts and a National Endowment for the Humanities. And they came together to this research and said, yeah, let's not privatize it all. And it kind of continued under presidents and now no longer exists. So, you know, what what did that group really do over those, you know, 30 so years to change music and the arts in this country? It's something that I want to dig into a little bit more that there's not much written about. Cool. It sounds like this book then was kind of a like a jump off point for you, I guess, in terms of some of those other interests you have. Um, Definitely. Which is really cool. I'm excited to see where you go with this project and you know those other ideas. And certainly I know um, 
performing arts organizations as a whole too is a big shift right now. So I wish you the best with that. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. And thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, this was great. Yeah. And uh, of course, we have to thank our listeners. Um, Just as a recap, this is the end of an interview with Dr. Timothy Storhoff about his book, Harmony and Normalization, U.S.-Cuban Musical Diplomacy, published by the University Press of Mississippi in 2020. And this is Emily Allen here on New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network.